I'm Luke Simmons. And I'm Seth Trout. Welcome to King Culture. Well, hey, Seth. Hi, Luke. Hey, this is uh, this is kind of fun today. We have a guest. We've had some guests before. Not very many. Not very many, no. Usually it's like when you're gone, I'll pick someone to take your place. <laughs> so less we have a guest and more I have had a guest. Yeah, and typically they'll come into the studio and that kind of thing. But uh, today we have something kind of special, kind of different. Uh, there's a guy we connected to in uh, over the course of the last year. and actually met up with him at the Gospel Coalition Conference in Indianapolis. We took some interns and... It's kind of a cool thing. We had met him on Twitter and connected with him and engaged there and then, you know, had lunch and spent some time together. And so he's our guest today. Yeah, and he's he's an insightful guy. I think uh, a lot of people have gone through this thing called deconstruction and some have like tried to help people deconstruct their faith. But he has a book coming out that's really about how to help people reconstruct their faith after they've gone through uh, or are going through a deconstruction. And so he's got a fresh voice, a fresh angle. And I think for you and I, who haven't personally gone through that type of crisis, it's helpful to listen to someone who has and who's come out on the other side and has been in a healthy place for a while. Sometimes I think people go through a crisis and when they've been out of it for like five minutes, they're like, let me tell you about how to get out. And it's like, sure. it's too soon. Yeah. And Timothy warns, or Paul warns about us about that in Timothy. Like, don't be too swift in the laying on of hands. And I think Ian's uh, been walking with Jesus in a wise and rich way for a while after having gone through something pretty significant, he's got a book coming out. He'll tell you about it here as we get going. Yeah, so we've done a couple episodes related to deconstruction. We can link to those in the description. Uh, but I think this is going to be a helpful conversation and uh, help really kind of, I don't know, it's always helpful when you take it out of some abstract principles and you put it into someone's real story. And so uh, that's what this conversation is. So without further ado, here's our conversation with Ian Harbour. All right, well, we're here with our friend Ian Harbour. Ian Harbour, the, the best thing about him is that he knows what we're talking about today. Uh, there are <laughs> That's other... <laughs> the best thing about him? The, the reason we Boy, have him. We got low quality guests if the best thing about him is they know what we're talking about. You know, everyone's got a limited perspective and experience, and mine is limited, and yours is limited, Luke. And so relative to this oh, I conversation. Thought, I thought you meant like we told him what we're talking about. He knows that. Oh, no. You mean like he actually knows what he's talking about today? I mean, we've done podcasts on deconstruction. That's true. And neither of us have actually gone through that. Right. So that should be a yellow flag to people who are going, going that. But uh, I met Ian. We met Ian uh, this past fall. And he's got a book coming out on deconstruction. And so the best thing about him as it relates to the conversation about <laughs> deconstruction is that he personally walked this path uh, for a lot of years. And his book he has coming out is really written to people who want to help people who are going through a deconstruction of, of various severities. And so uh, we thought it'd be great to have him on uh, as many of us who are either listening, uh, are personally deconstructing the faith, or... Uh, are one or two degrees removed from folks who are uh, deconstructing their faith. And we want to get into not just understanding it, but actually being signs and agents of God's kingdom in the midst of loving people who are going through uh, this deconstruction thing. And so, Ian, thanks for coming on the King Culture Podcast. Seth, Luke, I'm excited to be here. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, well, uh, tell us a little bit about like timeline on your book. I know some people just mentioning that will have that burning question. So 
let's do some of that uh, right now. So when's your book coming out? Who's it coming out with? And if they want updates about that book as it comes out, uh, where's the best place to get some of those things? Yeah, thanks. So yeah, writing the book right now, the, the manuscript's been turned in. It's being edited right now. So it's with InterVarsity Press. And we're still working on both the title and release date. So right now, it is on the calendar for January 2025. I think there's a chance it comes out before that. So maybe sometime this fall. Um, so it, it'll be coming out, you know, no no more than, no later than that. Uh, but if you want more updates on it, there's also, uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Ian Harbor, or you can go to my Substack, backagainwords.com, subscribe there. And I'm always providing updates when I have them there. Yeah. That, that title of your Substack, Back Again Words, it, it feels uh, like weighty. Uh, when you were naming that, what were you going through? Like, how did you, because that, that's a very deconstruct, reconstruct language. Tell me about Back Again Words. Yeah. Uh, I was trying to come up with a title for the, the Substack that wasn't just, you know, Ian Harbour's newsletter or something like that. And, uh, you know, just kind of thinking through my story. And um, the reason anybody sees any of my stuff anyways is because several years back I had an article for the Gospel Coalition where I shared some of my story. Uh, and, and it went pretty viral, which was uh, surprising to me at the time. And um, But just kind of thinking through that, going through deconstruction and then finding your way back to Jesus. And I was trying to think of what's a easy way to kind of capture what that feels like or what that journey is like. And so, you know, I was thinking about Tolkien and the Hobbit and thinking about the uh, there and back again. It's like, that's what it feels like. It feels like I went there, wherever there is, just somewhere away from the Lord, away from any sort of sturdy ground to be on. Uh, but back again, because I was raised in the church. Uh, I was raised at a Christian home. I knew all of the basic truths of Christianity growing up. And so I was, I was, I was there in the first place, you know, uh, and then kind of had my deconstruction, my time of wandering, my time of doubt, uh, my time of trying to figure things out, um, but finding myself back again into the loving arms of Jesus, into the church, his people. And so that's kind of where I find myself today. Yeah, well, I appreciate that, Ian. A good Tolkien vision uh, is recently resonant with me since I read all the Tolkien stuff for the first time last summer. Uh, so yeah, I think when we that. met, uh, you guys first, like when we first met in person, you know, we were having lunch and you guys were sort of starting to geek out over uh, your recent, you know, affection for Tolkien and and fiction and all sorts of things. So, oh, yeah, that, and was, we, a, and that we, was a fun yes. connection moment. And we like to wear the same type of shirts, cut shirts, free <laughs> shout out. So Tolkien and cut shirts. Is this sponsored? Brought to you by. Well, that's right. Well, we were both reading Tolkien for the first time. And uh, so it was yeah. exciting to... Uh, to have that connection. Yeah. Yeah. So Ian, I think, uh, for a lot of my life, there was like this narrative of, you know, someone's raised in the church and they go to college and they like to sin and they party. And then like they have kids and they come back to church because they want to have moral kids. So there's like this kind of typical arc of, uh, raising the church, but now I like drinking and partying and having sex and, so I leave for college years, and then I come back. Uh, your story is not like that stereotypical, I like to sin, so I deconstructed my faith story. Uh, would you even call that deconstruction, or how would you compare that to your story? Um, like, walk us through how what you went through was different than just wandering away versus deconstructing. Yeah, I don't know. That story that you described, I'm not 100% sure the best way to 
characterize that because I'm sure it's, you know, slightly different for each person, but there's some level of, at, at a minimum, there's a cultural Christianity there of just never really taking it seriously, never really believing it, you know. I don't even know how common that story is anymore because a lot of people just uh, walk away and they never come back. That's sort of the dechurching phenomena yeah. that we're hearing. That feels more to me. I mean, if they were, if they were never saved in the first place, um, then there's that. Or there's just... I would call that apostasy. <laughs> they just left. They just left the faith. And, um, you know, I don't know if that's deconstruction. Maybe there's some rethinking that have, is involved there. But, you know, if someone is going, is just like, man, this isn't for me. I just want to go do whatever I want to do. You know, I heard someone say one time, like, they were very honest about it. They just said, self-denial is really hard. <laughs> it's like, yeah, mm. it is, you know? And so that's just, to me, I think we have a word for that in the faith. And that's apostasy. They just left. Um, we don't need a word like deconstruction for that because uh, there wasn't much deconstructing happening. It was more just I'm out. Um, this isn't what I want to do with that, my life. You know, Ian, that's a really helpful distinction between apostasy and deconstruction because I think a lot of folks hear about deconstruction and they want to lump apostasy into that or under that umbrella. Whereas apostasy is just walking away, whereas deconstruction, you keep using the word rethinking. Uh, I'd, I'd love to hear like some of your stories. So you said you grew up in the church and then there's a kind of this there and back again deal. Like, tell me about uh, some of like your early experience in the church and what led to your initial uh, crisis of deconstruction. Yeah. I want to, you know, I'll save you from a full biography because that's not helpful or probably even that interesting, but it, it's important to say that right off the bat when I uh, was born, I was born into a broken family immediately and so uh, when I was, uh, you know, one, my dad left. When I was three, I was taken from my mom and given to my grandparents. And that was how I ended up in a Christian home. It was, wow. my grand, it was foster care of my grandparents. And my grandparents said they, they would take me. And so um, I, I only say that to say that the setting for all of this is a broken family and some level of suffering for as far back as I can possibly remember from the very beginning of my life. There has always been some confusion just around what life was what my place in it was always an awareness that things aren't the way they should be. Right. Um, and so that produces some natural things in you. I think, um, when things are thrown into the air from the very beginning. Right. So that, so that that's the setting. And so then you have a kind of a series of events that happen when I'm fairly young. So, uh, my grandmother who, again, I, who raised me. So for all intents and purposes, my mother figure, she passed away of cancer uh, the day after Christmas, uh, my eighth grade year. And then I went to wow. 12 more funerals after that in the span of about two and a half years. And the last of those funerals was my mom who took her own life uh, from a drug overdose. And a lot happened in that time. Those are extremely formative years. And so to one, not really know my place in the world to begin with at that time, uh, there was some levels of depression back then as well. And then to just go to funeral after funeral after funeral of family member and family friend and, you know, all these different people that I knew was extremely uh, disorienting for me at the time. You can almost track it in my grades, too. I went from being a really good student to being a very terrible student. And at the time, I thought it was because I was a bad student. And now I realize it was probably just unprocessed grief the whole time. But yeah. uh, so lots of things happen in there, right? You know, somewhere in the that in that story, I had... Uh, kind of your typical uh, camp, 
conversion experience, highly emotional, had no idea what was going on, but just highly emotional. And there's some dedication of my life to the Lord in that situation. And what that, what that essentially did was send me right into a path of legalism, became extremely legalistic, did not understand the gospel, even despite having that emotional experience. Um, and just really thought, I mean, I remember trying to lead a Bible study one time and I ended it with, I know it's too much to ask to be perfect, but is it too much to ask to try? (laughs) Which is not the gospel in the slightest, even close to it. Uh, but that was the attitude that I had about my faith. And so it really didn't take long for that to crash and burn as you might expect. And so I, I just got really tired of trying to keep up that facade. I didn't know what that meant. I just knew I was exhausted from it on top of the grief, on top of the existential sort of restlessness from everything that had been going on in my life at the time. It's so I was at a very vulnerable place at a very young age. And so this yeah, was in, in, yeah. in, let me, let me, let me pause you just real quick there because uh, like one, I'm just super thankful for your willingness to share that. Like I, like trying to get back into my 12 year old self and think about going through those, that many funerals of that significant of people like that's disorienting on its own. And so there's like this cocktail of suffering and then legalism as attempted antidote to suffering. And, and that's just a really different situation to be in than kind of the apostasy narrative of someone who's just kind of wants to do something else. Like you're, like this is like suffering and second layer of suffering induced by legalism, which is oppressive in its own form. And like that's just a wild place to be in. You talk about like being a vulnerable physician, like that is whatever the definition of vulnerable is. So I appreciate you sharing all that. Thanks. Yeah. And you know, it's it's just interesting going through that at you know, I was um it's high school when all this stuff is happening. Um, it's been kind of interesting right now. This is a little bit of a side tangent, but right now I'm about halfway through reading confessions, Augustine's confessions. And it's interesting how basically the whole first half of that book is him recounting his life from about 16 to 30. And I'm 30 today. And a lot of this stuff was going down when I was around the age of 16, kind of this really intense crucible stuff that happened in my life. And, uh, it's just interesting to, uh, read him reflecting all that. And I'm not saying I'm anywhere near Augustine. I'm just trying to say like, the formative things that happen in your life around that time are can can put you on really interesting trajectories. But um, yeah, so th- like I said, I was really vulnerable at that time, and this was at the very beginning of when the internet was kind of hitting scale before it had really become the thing that it is today. But you could see that I was going to go there, and so uh, you know, growing up an only child, really the place that I turned to after I got home from school was like more than friends or anything else was the internet. And that had been true for years. And so, you know, deconversion stories on the internet are kind of a dime a dozen. You can find them everywhere, uh, especially because of the conversation around deconstruction and stuff like that. But at the time they were super rare. There weren't that many. And I happened to stumble upon one of them on YouTube. It was one of the very first ones. And this guy was a former Christian who had kind of been captured by some of the new atheist movement. And he talked about these five pillars that uh, that the that wrecked his faith. Really, if you take down these five pillars, and you no longer have a faith, right? So it's stuff like uh, a personal God, prayer, uh, the authority of Scripture, you know, different things like that. The community of people, 
And if you don't have that, then you really don't have anything for your faith to stand on. And so he just systematically took it down. And I remember watching those every night for a while. And I realized at the end of one night, I was like, I don't believe this anymore. I don't believe any of this stuff anymore. I don't think it's real. I don't think it's true. And so that was probably the night I deconverted for a lack of a better word. I don't know what else to say. I just realized I don't believe this stuff anymore. There's no way I can uh, handle this. There's no way I can intellectually believe these things anymore with any sort of intellectual uh, integrity. And so that's one of the interesting parts about deconstruction is like, I do think when we talk about deconstruction more often than not, we have in mind sort of what I just talked about as like this intellectual mechanical process, but really, you know, I talked about, I'm in an emotional, a vulnerable, a vulnerable, an emotionally vulnerable place. And then I encounter these intellectual arguments against the faith that I really don't have any counter against, uh, you know, and talking to different people in my life at the time, uh, pastors and, you know, youth pastors and youth leaders and different stuff like that, there weren't any really great answers. And so it's this combination of existential emotional crisis and intellectual uh, challenges that kind of work together in order to erode a faith, right? Um, and so that was sort of when my faith fall, fell apart. So there was, there's maybe about a year or so where I would have straight up called myself not a Christian. Um, and it's after that when things get a little bit more complicated. I, I had an experience with the Lord that I don't even have really good theology for this. And so that's what makes it hard to talk about because I feel crazy even talking about it. But I remember realizing uh, that I just hadn't read my Bible in a long time and I felt weird about it. And that's the thing. I felt weird about feeling weird about not reading my Bible for a long time, <laughs> which is just a weird place to be in. And so I picked it up and I, I started, you know, reading through Matthew for about a month that I got to the end. I realized I don't know if Jesus is God. Um, but if he is, if there is a God, it would be awesome if he was like Jesus, uh, because wow. Jesus is awesome. And so that kind of sat with me for a while that was, this was the summer after my mom passed away. And so again, I'm kind of in a vulnerable grieving moment. It was a really weird experience with my mom who I was estranged from taking her own life. That's uh, a weird emotional place to be in too. But I sort of had this moment where I was like, God, I don't know what I believe anymore. I don't know if I believe this. I don't know if you're real. I don't know if you're real, if you're what you say you are in the Bible, but I want to commit to finding you. And if I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this for real. I'm not going to mess around like before, you know, it's not going to be this legalism thing. It's not going to be abandoning the whole thing when it gets hard. If I'm doing this, I'm doing it for real. And uh, what I want to commit is to finding you. And I don't have good theology for this, but I just remember hearing a voice in my head that said, I can work with that. And it was really clear to me. I can work with that. And I just Mm. feel like the Lord has kept we've both the lord and me have kept up our end of the deal ever since um which is where it gets complicated right because it that search for him took me to some really weird places took me some to some heretical places or uh, you know a bit of them kind of just heterodox places but definitely into more progressive christian uh things that i would not even consider christianity places um but it was all a genuine search for the lord uh, that I do think he kept up his end of the deal. It took years, <laughs> but he worked with me. Yeah. He, I think he had patience yeah. with me. I think he worked with me, and um, I feel confident in my faith today. I do feel a settled confidence in who the Lord is yeah, and well, my place in his in His kingdom. That I love that, Ian. 
So just to kind of like recap a bit. So you have this cocktail of trauma, suffering, and legalism. And then there's just like this kind of year of quiet, of separateness. And then there is what seems like you are enamored by like the beauty of Jesus. And there's like this, I don't think this is true, but I want it to be true. Yeah. Or if it was true, I would like it to be like this. And then kind of like a, I'll put my foot on the path and see where it leads. But like I, like I think about Augustine talks about how the desire for grace is grace. And right. like there's something there. Like I, I want this, but I don't even know if I believe it's true, but I want it to be true. Would you would you call that kind of like the point at which you started to like labor to reconstruct your faith? Uh, or, or how would you like label the, that moment as like a turning point? Would, would you call it a conversion? Would you call it um, a, a, just a shift? Would you call it like foundation of reconstruction? How would you put label on that season of your life? Yeah, it's tough because, you know, I think in evangelicalism, we like to have really clean stories of, and this is when I was converted, and this is when I became a Christian, you know, and I just don't have that. And I think, I don't know how normal that is or not normal that is, but it's just so tough to look back and say, oh, this is, this is uh, when I officially became a Christian or when I knew I was saved or something like that. It's been really messy for me for most of my life. And so... Uh, you know, I think what happened then, uh, I don't know if that's when the Lord saved me or not, but I do know that that was sort of the beginning of, I'm going to figure this out and I'm going to let this take me wherever it goes. Um, I don't know if I'd call that, I don't know if I would call that reconstruction because there was nothing, uh, at least not, re- at least not intentionally reconstructing, right? Because I think everybody's reconstructing their faith at some level. You can't live without some level of reconstruction, whether it's conscious or unconscious, intentional or unintentional. Everybody's reconstructing something. So there is that, right? Um, but I don't know if I would call it that just because it was still very much um, negative. And by that, I mean uh, tearing down the faith that I had grown up with, right? It was still very much, well, it's not this, right? Uh, it's not this, it's not this, it's not this. But there was no conception of what it actually was, you know? It was basically all the things I didn't grow up with, uh, but it was replaced by virtually nothing, right? Um, to the point to where, you know, at one point you don't even have the resurrection anymore. Well, if you don't have the resurrection, what do you have? Um, I don't know. It could be, you know, it could be this, could be that, but it wasn't anything solid or coherent or anything that you could stand on with any sort of confidence or even existential piece about it. What it's interesting, Ian, is I hear you, you tell your story. I mean, it's such a great example of, um, I think it was Charles Taylor called it the cross pressure that we all feel that because, you know, we live in this world that's haunted by Christ, but still so, uh, shaped by secularism, you know, the people who have faith have lots of doubts and questions and go, can this be real? And the people who don't have faith are like, yeah, but is this all there is? Right. And, and, even as I hear you like think about the legalism and, you know, we can't be perfect, but we should sure try. Um, you probably thought of that as a pretty strong faith, but it sounds like it actually was pretty flimsy because it took a YouTube video and it just kind of all fell apart. <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah. And so I think that's maybe one of the things that I wonder if that's a common story as you interact with other people as well, Ian, is like people who they would describe their faith as a really strong faith. And therefore, it was really disoriented when they started having these massive doubts about it. But maybe you'd actually look at it and go, it actually wasn't that strong. It was kind of 
it was kind of built more on cultural dynamics or sociological dynamics, but it actually wasn't really, really that strong of a thing. And yet if your experience is like, boy, I was so committed to this and now I'm not, that's super disorienting. Yeah, I think that's right. I think, you know, the Lord had me at a really unique time, a really unique place in that time of my life because it was kind of the beginning of the internet as we know it today. Right. And so what is just interesting is that like what happened to me, that was, you know, 15 years ago that that happened is now everywhere right now. Like if you get, if you go look at the hashtag deconstruction on TikTok, there's over a billion views and counting on that hashtag alone. Right. And so it's everywhere. It's in the air that we breathe, the digital air that we breathe. Uh, and I think that's why, um, it's not, it's not, uh, people like to say that deconstruction is trendy and I'm like, that's not really the right word for it, but it is a trend in that it spreads, right? It is spreading sort of through the digital atmosphere that we're living in because somebody grew up in their church in church their whole life and they held all the right beliefs that they thought, you know, and then they are served the video by the algorithm. That's like, here's why you can't trust the Bible for three reasons, you know, and they point out things that people actually have really reasonable answers for. But when you first hear them, they're extremely jarring because you're like, wait, mm. I thought this is this, you know? So that's one, sure. you know, there's kind of two ways. Of, that's kind of more of like a doctrinal way of going, but there's also the cultural way. I mean, I think tons of people, and I understand this, you know, when, uh, Trump was elected back in 2016. All of us remembered when we were growing up and and heard all the talked about talk about how character matters with Clinton, and so there was this kind of, uh, you know, dissonance that happened in us of like, wait, all these people that told us that character matters in our leaders and in, in, in our pastors and all these different things, all of a sudden, don't really seem to believe that right now. Why? And if they don't believe that, did they ever really believe any of this stuff to begin with? I think there's you know, pragmatic reasons. Somebody could have thought, you know, the best reason I could vote for the best person I could vote for is Trump in X, Y, Z reasons. But there's people that were enthusiastic about their support for him, despite his character flaws. And I think just many, many, many people raised in evangelicalism saw that and said, what is going on here? And it caused a existential dissonance for them where they, they just weren't able to reconcile um, what they were seeing from those who had taught them uh, and the actual beliefs that they were taught and they just didn't know what to do with that. And so it sent them into a, uh, a crisis. So Ian, I'm curious, just do you have a working definition of deconstruction? Yeah, I do. It's, it's a little wordy and I guess that's on purpose. I try to purposely do things that aren't, uh, catchy or cool. <laughs> um, but I, I, hope well, this is I mean, I, yeah. <laughs> I assume you're spending a whole book unpacking it. So that's, that's, right. that's understandable. Did, did, you, that's did right. you say you on purpose do things that are not catchy or cool? That's right. I share quotes uh, that are way too long and not, you know, not tweetable and stuff like that. But <laughs> that's maybe a different well, conversation. Ian, you're, 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 yeah. That you're, you're doing important work there, man. Thanks, man. Thanks, <laughs> so, man. <laughs> uh, so yeah. So my working definition of, of, Deconstruction is deconstruction is a crisis of faith that leads to the questioning of core doctrines and untangling of cultural ideologies that settles in a faith that is different than before. So, All right. so we got a crisis of faith that leads to questioning of core doctrines. What was the third part? Yeah, and untangling of cultural ideologies untangling cultural realities that settles in a new faith different than before. Right. That settles in a faith different than before. Got it. So 
you got let's start with crisis because uh, I think again from the outside looking in you can see someone deconstructing and it just looks simple like oh I used to believe this now I believe that or I used to believe this and I don't but crisis sounds like suffering sounds like angst sounds like it sounds experiential sleep, exper- and not just yeah. mental or cognitive it sounds like sleepless nights it sounds like who am I like so like un- unpack what you mean by the word crisis there yeah, I think, you know, you going back to the question you asked me about someone, you know, just leaving the church and the, the difference between apostasy and deconstruction. I think to me, th- this idea of deconstruction being a crisis is the the key, the differentiator of what makes something deconstruction versus just, you know, having questions or being curious or critical thinking or even apostasy. Because there is an existential layer to deconstruction that I think many people miss because they don't see it. It's not right there on the surface. What they see is, um, you know, in the best case scenario, they just see somebody asking a lot of questions. In the worst case scenario, they see someone extremely angry and just trying to burn everything down. What they don't see is this layer of crisis on top of all of that, that actually everything else is being filtered through, right? And so, you know, I, so I have a friend who she kind of fits a lot of the, uh, the, she checks a lot of the boxes that we were just talking about raised in the church, you know, have all the right beliefs, all, all these different things. Right. And, and I think she's a Christian. Absolutely. think she is. Um, but you know, we were having this conversation about deconstruction and she was sharing with me how she has doubts about the inspiration and authority of scripture that kind of came out of, out of nowhere. Now it actually came out of some, uh, emotional turmoil in her life as well. And so I think there's a common denominator of crisis begetting crisis. Um, but, you know, we are talking about, she's like, you know, I talked to my friend about this and she was like, oh yeah, deconstruction is critical thinking. And she's like, yeah, I am thinking critically, but also I can't sleep at night and I'm scared. And I don't know what this means for my future if I end up not believing this. And I don't know if I'm going to believe it or not. <laughs> like, it's not a foregone conclusion. Like, I just feel, I feel like I'm in a dark room and I'm just trying to find a light switch right now, you know? So it is intellectual, but there's this existential crisis of faith that's going on on top of all of it. And just like any crisis, a crisis is experienced the same way suffering is or, or grief is because it's a loss, right? If you lose your certainty, if you lose certainty is not even the right word, just your confidence in God, then you're losing a whole bunch of different things, right? You're losing your moral compass. You're losing your existential comfort that these truths bring to you. You're losing your community. If you decide that you don't believe these things anymore, how could you in good faith go to a church and call yourself a part of it anymore? And if God is our father and you lose God, then it's like a parent dies. It's like you're losing someone who is, is close to you, who is a family member, who's a parent. And so there's grief involved. And so that's why I think this crisis, what people don't understand is that deconstruction is felt. It's not necessarily gone through, but it's felt the same way that a death is, that grief is. And we know the five stages of grief. They're denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and acceptance. And they don't happen in that order. And they don't happen all in the same amount of time or the same intensity. And you can bounce around like a ping pong machine, ping pong, like a pinball machine. That's what you say. Um, But those are the stages that someone goes through when they experience loss and grief. 
And I think you can map that on top of deconstruction because there is that level of denial at the beginning of, oh, these aren't, this isn't that big of a deal. I'm not having doubts. And they start doubling down on, you know, reading their Bible or praying or going to church or whatever in order to kind of quell a lot of those doubts and those fears and pretend like they're not there, which those things are good things. We shouldn't, you know, say people shouldn't do that if they're experiencing this, but it comes from this place of fear of just trying to keep these doubts aside. Right. And then I think what people see most often, especially on the internet is anger. There's a real anger that comes in deconstruction. When you realize I thought this stuff could be counted on. I thought this stuff could be, was true. I thought these people who were around me actually believed these things. I thought, I thought, I thought, I thought, I thought, and turns out, I don't know how much of any of it's true. And you just feel anger towards the people that are around you, towards God, towards the church, towards yourself, maybe for having duped people, or at least in your mind, you think maybe duped people into believing things that you don't even know are true anymore. Bargaining feels a lot like denial, but it's kind of a short circuiting of the process. Like, okay, God, if I just do these things, maybe all these doubts will go away. I kind of had this part of my story where I was doing ministry while I was deconstructing and didn't even know if I believed any of these things. <laughs> Cause I was like, well, if I just do all these things, then I'll forget about my doubts. Nobody will ask me about my doubts. Nobody will question me about any of these things. It just looks like I'm doing all these really great things for God. And turns out that did not end out, end up very well either. Um, it's a short circuiting of the, of the process. Instead of going through it, you're trying to just end it in the middle of it. Depression does all the same things that, you know, normal depression does to you. It isolates you. It turns you inward. It's like, instead of anger at everybody else, it's like, uh, frustration at yourself, shame that you feel inside of yourself. Um, and then eventually acceptance, uh, which can go a whole bunch of different ways. And maybe we could talk about that if you want to, but just the idea that there's an existential layer of that, of deconstruction, that it, it is experienced. It may not look like it, but it's experienced like grief much more than some mechanistic intellectual exercise that people wake up one day and decide they want to do. Well, p part of what I find so helpful about that is that, you know, for, and I'm sure we're going to talk about how to, you know, how to walk with people who are experiencing this kind of thing. But one of the things that you wouldn't do with someone who had just experienced the death of a loved one is go, ah, it's not that bad. Like, come on. Is it really, right. is it really loss? You know, you, like you, you wouldn't minimize, I mean, at least if you had any sense of emotional self-awareness or health, you wouldn't just minimize somebody's grief and go, ah, that's not really grief. And I, I think maybe that's one of the places we go wrong is people are having these these crises of faith and these existential moments. And in the outside, you start sort of putting on a you know, referee shirt to evaluate whether or not this is a real crisis, you know. And uh, th that just out of the gate would be a very alienating way to handle it, I would think. Well, and, and I think that five stages of grief framework gives you the tools to engage with appropriate empathy and patience to someone who's going through a crisis. Like if, if someone just lost a loved one and three days later they have an angry outburst, you don't go like, man, those people need to get their crap together. You go like, man, they're going through it and that's, that's okay. And I, I can absorb some of that. And I think we need, when we have the tools to cope with other people's emotions, it makes us more resilient and we're able to be a loving presence in the midst of their varying degrees of, crisis. And so that framework is really helpful for it. Yeah. And I'm, I'm curious in that definition. So you talked about the crisis of faith, 
and, um, you know, working through certain doctrines. And, and that part, I guess, I'm sure you'll have a whole section in your book about, you know, the details of that. That seems pretty straightforward in terms of there's theological and doctrinal and biblical things to wrestle through. I'd love to have you especially unpack the, that third part a bit more of the, the untangling the, the, cult, the cultural dynamics uh, that, that were kind of informing a person's, you know, whatever they had as their faith. What is that part? Why is that so important? And because I think we focus a lot on the doctrinal piece and how do we, you know, get the truth right and how do we correct the error? You know, how, how do you, how do we do that? Or, or I guess how do you talk about the cultural unentangling thing? Yeah, I think you know the two words that people talk about a lot in, in these conversations are orthodoxy and orthopraxy, right? And so I think the doctrine side of things is the orthodoxy. You want to have your your orthodoxy down uh, and have hold the right beliefs in the right way and, and all those kinds of things. But then there's the orthopraxy and that can play itself out in lots of different ways. But I do think one thing is just simply the culture of our churches. What kind of churches uh, do we have? Are we in, are we leading and environments are we creating in them? And so what I think a lot of people found themselves in, and this is really, um, you know, I'm sure this is true across tradition, but it just feels maybe it's because I come from it, but just particularly pronounced in evangelicalism is this idea that, uh, of a performative church. And I don't necessarily mean a performative church in terms of like what the church looks like or what it does. But, um, Yuval Levin in his book, A Time to Build talks about this idea of performative institute, uh, performative institutions, how, what institutions are meant to do at their best is actually form people. They're like molds that you go into the institution and it molds you into a certain kind of person, into having a certain kind of character just by virtue of the institution, right? Um, and so in theory, you would uh, do or not do certain things based on, you know, a position that you held that commanded a certain level of character or an institution that you were part of because you were representing that institution. This is not just churches, right? This is Congress and, uh, you know, school boards and like, whole, you know, every institution that you can think of. This is marriage even, um, but in churches, this idea of a performative institution where it doesn't actually form you, uh, but it's being used by everybody in it as a performance, like to perform on. And I think there's a lot of churches that people come from who are deconstructing that fit that bill. And maybe even some churches that don't even realize they are, that they, instead of forming people, they are performances for the people that are involved in them, right? And so this can look like a whole bunch of different things where, you know, I think one of the easiest ones to look at is this sort of um, political performance that I was talking about from, you know, several years back of these churches who they are caught up in this political performance where they see themselves as not just trying to form people into the image of Christ, but advance a particular political agenda. So there's a church not too far from me who they had their, their mega church and they had their choir write a song called make America great again. And they performed it on the 4th of July. It's quite literally a performance. Like, <laughs> like in a church service or like at a special like 4th of July party thing? No, no, no. It was their, it was their Sunday service. And it was okay. like their 4th of July Sunday service. And they performed a, a choir song, Make America Great Again. That's quite literally a performance. Uh, but I do think there are churches that 
that is just the general uh, ethos of the whole church. They they see themselves there more to advance certain political agendas rather than actually be formed into the image of Christ. And this goes for the right, the left. This isn't particular just to the right, but I think many people who are deconstructing find themselves in places where um, it's difficult to discern what is the gospel from what is, uh, you know, Southern conservative politics. And when those two things actually do come apart, it, the whole thing breaks rather than uh, being able to make a healthy differentiation between those. What and would I'd be some it, other, what would be a couple other examples of, you know, besides the political realm? I mean, that one makes a lot of sense. Can you, can you think of a couple others where we might fall into that performance trap? I do, yeah, I do think this is where some of the uh, abuse and cover-ups of abuse comes into play too, which might sound kind of weird to say, putting this under the pretense of a performative church. But when you think about why, what incentive structure is there for a church as an institution, not individual, not an individual leader or anything like that, but the church as an institution to cover up abuse in their church? What, why, why not just go ahead and do the right thing and hold the person to account? Is it because it would disrupt the performance it would disrupt the influence that the leaders have that the church has that the institution has it would disrupt the power that they have it would disrupt uh the way that just the the whole organization would be disrupted by that because instead of forming people saying hey this abuse is not okay this abuse goes against everything that we believe this abuse is sinful um and we need to deal with it because we need to deal with it the way christ would deal with it um they and they cover up and enable the abuse because to do otherwise would disrupt everything that they have in order to continue on going the way that they've been going. And so that's definitely one way that I think uh, the abuse and the performance kind of come together of saying we would rather cover this up or not deal with it the way that we should deal with it than lose face over what that means that this happened in our congregation. And I think yeah, another one is it. just, um, and again, it, this is a, this is kind of a, um, it's easy to say this word. I don't want to say what I'm not saying. Cause I don't think this looks like a particular kind of church, but, um, I would say attractionalism is another way where it's this idea of, um, unfettered growth for the sake of unfettered growth. <laughs> so like I used to go to a church that would probably even call themselves attractional, and I remember hitting a spot where I, it was kind of the bottom of my deconstruction. And I went to them and I said, Hey, I want to grow in my faith. Can you guys help me? And they straight up told me, they said, no, we can't. <laughs> and I was wow. like, what do you mean? I was like, no, we don't. Your faith is your responsibility. We're just here to get like, we're, we're just trying to get more new people in the, in the door. And I was like, what? So like my discipleship to you doesn't matter now that I'm here. You just want me to serve and like help out and whatever else. Like, but I'm not a priority to you. You just want to get as many people in here as possible. And it was really that explicit. And to be honest, I have to admire some level of their honesty because I think a lot of churches do operate that way and they aren't honest about it. But I don't think it looks like a particular church. I think there's mega churches that actually take discipleship seriously. And I think there's small churches that operate as an attractional church. So it's not, it's not, what does a church look like? Um, but it's that idea of we're just trying to attract people to the church for the sake of making our church bigger and, uh, you know, building our brands and building, my, they would never say this, but my ego, um, and trying to get people in the door in order rather than actually form them into disciples of Christ. 
Yeah, no, nobody's so honest that they'd say, I'm here to build my ego, but they might be honest on different <laughs> levels. Right. Um, so, so, Ian, this brings us kind of to back to your story and to your fourth layer of definition, which is that settles into a faith that was different than before. And I'd imagine that that settling into a faith that was different than before, uh, ideally that'd be a more mature faith, a more biblical faith, a more close-to-Jesus faith. And that's part of what separates even some of this deconstruction that may end in apostasy versus may end in a reconstruction of sorts. Uh, so that, that like selling into new faith. So you're the bottom is deconstruction. You're going to your church saying, hey, I want to rebuild this thing. Can you help me? And they say, no. I'm curious for you, what was your process of being getting to the place where you are now, where you're uh, pretty settled and confident as a follower of Jesus who's rooted in the evangelical tradition. You know, you didn't deconstruct into being Roman Orthodox or Russian Orthodox or, you know, you, you, you settled in a tradition that was fairly similar to the one of your upbringing, but just in the, you're situated differently. So what was your process in settling and developing and reconstructing? Love to turn it back on a little bit of your story. Yeah. So for me, um, what that looked like, you know, I, I had wrestled through a lot of the cultural things kind of already. In fact, I had a really interesting cultural experience when Trump was elected. I feel like when Trump was elected, everybody started deconstructing left and right. Like everybody I knew started deconstructing, whereas I had been deconstructing for years at that point. And so I, what was interesting was I saw everybody react to that situation. Uh, and I understood it and even empathized with a lot of it. But what I felt like was, oh, progressives are now treating conservatives the same way conservatives treated progressives when I was growing up, which is being fundamentalist about their beliefs, which is interesting because that's exactly what I was trying to get away from. So I felt like there was a crack that happened culturally for me in the opposite direction of everybody. It wasn't pro-Trump or anything like that. It was just, oh, everybody's fundamentalist. Great. So where I thought I was is not actually did not actually turn out to hold any water either. So that was an interesting experience for me. So what I really felt like I needed to focus on was the doctrinal side of things. And so and that, that's just where most of my questions were at. So I um, worked by and was friends with a lot of people who went to a different church um, and they had developed a training program. It was a seminary. It's essentially, can you shrink down a seminary class and put it in a local church? That's what they were trying to do. And I had had friends who had gone through it and just were singing its praises, telling me how it changed their life. And so I thought, okay, you know what? I have quite frankly (laughs) judged this church for many years and never thought I would go there, but at least they're taking people seriously and I want to be taken seriously and I want to take this seriously myself. And so I'm going to see if I can go. So I went to one of the guys running it and somewhat ironically now looking back, told him, I don't go to this church and I never plan on going to this church, but I'd love to do this training program. Can you get me in? (laughs) And he said, yeah, actually I can. Uh, you know, apply, shoot me an email and we'll see what happens. And so it's only because of him and the grace of the Lord that I got into that program. Um, and so I went and I don't know what else to say. It changed my life. I actually happened to go in, in the darkest season of my life too, as well. Uh, two months before I started the program, my grandfather passed away in a plane crash in Arizona, actually really close to you guys. Um, and so he, uh, so I, I was in the darkest, my dad disowned me two days after that, uh, situation because of falling out that we had. And so I was just in a really tough spot. And so I went to this training program and the first day, the guy that I talked to, he stood up 
And he said, we do theology in the light so we can stand on it in the dark. And I thought, well, I'm in the darkest place in my life right now. So that would have been nice uh, to do that before this, but let's keep going and see what happens. And so they just spent the next year um, essentially teaching all of the basics of the faith, but in a way that was robust in a way that took the faith seriously, took, um, took history seriously, that wasn't, um, that wasn't fundamentalist in the, in the sense of like, here are all of the secondary and tertiary doctrines that actually prove whether you're a Christian or not. And it really was, here's the core that every Christian at all times, everywhere has always believed. And just t- walking through that and realizing that there is a richness to Christianity that I was completely unaware of, um, just opened my eyes. And, and that's the word that I use for it. I mean, it would be easy, I think, to think, oh, I went to this theological training program and, and I reconstructed my faith. And really what I feel like it is, is the Lord illuminated his grace to me. He illuminated himself to me in that moment. I think it wasn't like I did all this hard work and now look at the faith that I reconstructed. It was, I was in a situation where the Bible was being taught to me um, in a serious way for the first time. And the Lord was opening up my eyes and opening up my ears to receive it probably for the first time as well. And um, the Lord illuminated himself to me through that situation. And so I got to the end of that program and I just, I really thought I was like, I don't have all the answers. I still have a bunch of questions, but this is a foundation that I actually can build on. I don't have to, I don't have to take this back down to the studs anymore. That foundation has been laid and that can be built on now. And I, I have a settled confidence in where my faith actually is. And, uh, this is a place that I can actually grow from rather than, um, you know, not really having anything to work with and nobody to really help me through it either. Wow. Yeah. The, again, thinking through like the ingredients that have helped you on your journey. Like the first one I keep coming back to is you hearing that quiet voice of God saying, I'll work with you or I'll work with that. So there's like this sense of like personal, personally being shepherded by the Lord. And then there's this community that makes space for you even when you kind of seems like you're pretty reactively like, I'm not going to go here, never going to go here, but can I consume (laughs) your training program? And they're like, yeah, sure. Like they weren't, they weren't triggered by your kind of, uh, I bet you'll reject me message. Uh, And so they welcomed you in and then it was just good, solid Bible teaching. Is that oversimplifying? It was the Lord was personally shepherding you, a community welcomed you in and it was good Bible teaching that didn't shy away from hard questions. Like I, I know that's that's probably oversimplifying it, but is that a fair summary? Well, and the other ingredient that I hear in there, Seth, too, uh, and you can, is that the Lord allowed you, Ian, to have continued suffering. Um, Isn't that a funny way of putting want that? that? It is a funny way to put it. I mean, allowed it's, it's me not... to have continued suffering, but that's exactly what it was, and I also think that was God's grace in my life. Yeah, I mean, it's. Like the reason you can recall the sentence the guy said the first night is because of the dark place you were in, and um, and I do think like it is a severe mercy, but that feels like another part of the equation. Yeah, Ian, yeah. Ian, I'm curious. I'm I'm curious. Outside of the church leaders, were there interactions you had with Christians along the way that helped you 
keep your feet on the path or that nudged you significantly or interactions you had that made you go, you know, forget this and these people. I like I tempted you to quit. Like I'm just thinking as we're trying to help people, like what are some examples of people who helped you on your journey versus people who tempted you to quit? Uh, and if you don't, if you have any, I'd love to hear those. Yeah. So, you know, going back to the training program, one thing that was key, I think in the way they structured that was that it wasn't like a lecture hall. There were lectures and there was reading and homework and papers and, and all of that, but we were put in groups together at circle tables. And so I did the training program with a group of guys that I got to know really well over that year. And part of it was a lot of discussion too. Right. And so I knew I had to go in there and just be completely honest. Like I couldn't fake my way through it. I didn't want to fake my way through it. And so I brought all my questions. I mean, I disagreed with what was being taught and I disagreed with people at my table. And I just said, I don't know if I believe this thing that was said, you know, and they, what was awesome about it was like, they didn't enable that. You know what I mean? Like they didn't just kind of cave and say like, well, I don't know, but they also accepted it. Like there was no condemnation. There was no judgment, but there was, um, good engagement and good interaction where I was like, you are also really smart. You know what you're talking about and you disagree with me, but you're also disagreeing with me and not like breaking relationship with me or judging me or anything like that. And it was just a really helpful conversation to have with all those guys. Cause it was like really safe, but also really intellectually stimulating and really helpful too. And so that was really, really helpful. Um, man, there's so many, there's so many interactions to talk about. So there was, there was something that, uh, if I hadn't done the training program, if I hadn't had just done it and gotten out of it, um, you know, the church that I was at, that I had just talked about, you know, we had a really, really rough ending with that church. Some stuff went down that was just extremely difficult. It's, uh, just really hurt by that church. And if I hadn't gone through the training program, I probably would have given up on the church then. Um, because it was, it was one of those situations that you hear about all the time of, you know, stuff being made up and just trying to push people out and all, all these different things. And so just had a really, really rough, hurtful ending with that church. Um, but two things happened. One, it was, I had gone through the training program. And so I was like, no, I actually believe this stuff and, and I actually think the church at its best is good and shouldn't be like this and should be otherwise. And so I believed in that. Um, and almost immediately we landed kind of in the arms of this other church, this brand new church plant that had just gotten started up full of amazing people. And, you know, I remember telling my wife at the time, I was like, we could have landed on rocks and instead the Lord let us land on a pillow and just really helped us land into this loving, gracious community of people who we straight up told them, we said, Hey, we're coming from a really, really rough situation. We're very hurt. We're very jaded. We're very cynical right now. And I don't know how much we're actually going to be able to give to this church at the current emotional state that we're at. And all the elders just looked at us and said, yep, we have all been hurt by the church too. We know exactly where you're at. That's okay. Come on in. And it was just amazing. It was amazing. And so we spent the next couple of years at that church and they're wonderful. Um, there are some reasons why I think we realized, Hey, we're probably not going to spend the rest of our lives here. Um, for the good of all of these relationships, it might be best if we don't stay here, but we love these people. Like it's not because it's a bad church or anything like that. There's just some things like we should, this is not where we're going to be forever. So we found a church that we're at today that even these churches have good relationships, 
relationships with each other, you know, even though there's differences and, um, same sort of stuff. The pastors were just like, Hey, we totally get it. We know what it's like to be hurt. Come on in and just sit, like, don't serve for a long time. Don't just sit and just receive. Um, and so we did for a long time and we have received in finding community, finding loving pastors who actually care for you. Um, it's just been amazing to find a community that you, that's like, you know what, we are being nourished here. Uh, but also we feel needed here, not in like a, you know, Oh, they need us or it's all going to fall apart, but just like we're in community and when you're in community, people need you and you need them and everybody goes through suffering. And when somebody suffers, they come around them and then it's someone else's turn to suffer. (laughs) Then everybody goes around them and you know, you just have everyday needs and you, you meet each other's needs and it's just, it's a, it's been incredible. And so that's kind of been how we, you know, there was even church hurt after I quote unquote reconstructed, um, but sort of what that process and experience looked like from there. Yeah. Ian, I'm I'm so thankful that that image of could have fallen on rocks, but instead fell on a pillow. I think there's an aspect there of having the eyes that are looking for reasons to be grateful in the midst of a lot of suffering in a truly difficult journey. I think for uh, especially our people at Ironwood Church and other listeners as well, the the main thing I want us to take away from this is that this deconstruction thing is a crisis and it requires long suffering as you're both walking it and walking with people who are walking it. And that capacity to be patient, to be curious, to not try to hustle people along, and even the willingness of people to admit, yeah, I've been sinned, by the, sinned against by the church too. Yeah, I've, I've had these crises. To connect with people in the midst of their pain, these are all things that it seems like the Lord used in your story, Ian. And I'm super grateful for your capacity. Like I think about wisdom is not experience, but it's experience well reflected on. And hmm. that's why I'm excited for your book, not just because of your experience, but because of your experience being well reflected on. And so I hope that for people who need the tools to reflect on their experience or even who need the tools to uh, continue in their experience of deconstruction, this book will be helpful to them and helpful to us as we try to help them. And so thanks for reflecting well in your experience and uh, for being a brother who's uh, walked a, a hard path. Because I think some, sometimes what we need is to see that someone has walked the path so that our, our sense of plausibility of, uh, increases. I could walk that path too. My, my brother could walk that path too. My sister could walk that path too. And it energizes our prayers and, uh, keeps uh, rewarding or incentivizing our, our acts of love. And so I'm thankful for your work and God's work in your life and for your wisdom. So thanks for coming on the podcast and uh, we'll link to the stuff you referenced on that gospel question article and your Substack in our show notes. So thanks big time, Ian. Yeah. Thanks for having me on guys. And I just really appreciate you both and your ministry, your podcast, your church. I know um, I loved hanging out with you guys at uh, TGC last fall. And I'm just really thankful for who you are and your ministry. Absolutely. Well, thanks, man. It's uh, great to have you and uh, it'll be fun to stay connected and uh, God bless you. Thank you. You as well. Yeah.